I'm Mark Lynch, director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we first talk to David Roberts about his new book, Security Politics in the Gulf Monarchies, Continuity and Change, which was just published in my series, actually, uh, by Columbia University Press. And then we talked to Jerome Gunning, who's the author recently of several articles with Dina Smera uh, about everyday security practices in Lebanon and uh, offering all kinds of interesting insights into the local nature of security. Uh, thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we talked to David Roberts of King's College London, author of the brand new book, Security Politics in the Gulf Monarchies, Continuity Amid Change, which was just published by Columbia University Press, actually in my own series on Columbia Studies and Middle East Politics. And uh, David, thanks for coming onto the program. It's been a pleasure working with you on this project for the last couple of years. I'm delighted to see it in print. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? So yeah, thank you so much for the invitation. So what can I say? It's a book looking at the six Gulf monarchies in one um, in one book, which is comparatively unusual in many ways. And I think that was as much the genesis of the book that we are at a moment where there is a huge amount changing in the Gulf in lots of different areas. And I wanted to say something about that, have a look at that um, without focusing on any one monarchy. And you know, we just haven't really seen that kind of book in a while. And so that was the basic genesis. What's going on in the Gulf monarchies today? And um, and here we are a couple of years later. Really, the closest comparison I can think of is uh, Christian Ulrichsen's book. And that was a decade ago. Yeah, there's Christian's book. You know, Christian's written loads of wonderful stuff. But like many people, like myself, my first book was just on Qatar. Christian's written just on Qatar, just on the Arab Spring. And even that book was looking at just a couple of elements of security. And so... In some ways, I would almost go back to Greg Gore's 1994 Oil Monarchies, which is a book that sort of sits back a bit from the Gulf Monarchies and just tries to say, I don't want to say general things, because I think it's a completely wonderful right, book, right. but it tries to situate the Gulf Monarchies about this is what it is. And that's a little bit what I had in mind, because I'm not just focusing on security as a hard thing, but as a much broader sort of a subject. Well, so... I guess one big kind of introductory thing to talk about is this concept of continuity amid change, because as you said, anybody going to the Gulf can see how quickly things are changing, both at the security dimension, high politics, but also at the social level and in lots of other ways. So when you say continuity amid change, what does that mean to you? You know, it goes from the flipping point that, you know, we've all seen, you know, those photos of Dubai of the Sheikh Zayed Road a couple of decades ago. It's this dusty road with maybe one, two or three story building or whatever it is. And today it's this metropolis looks like something from some futuristic vision of the future. You know, it's six lane motorways, world's tallest building. So the visuals of the Gulf have changed as spectacularly as anywhere in the world. Alongside that, these states have gone. It's the, the cliche is rags to riches, but that's perfectly legitimate. And in a couple of generations, really, um, there are grandfathers and grandmothers alive who didn't live in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. You know, we had profound change. We've got independence, um, educational achievements, health benefits, whatever the phrase may be, uh, infant mortality. These things have just changed astronomically um, in, like I say, a few generations. And so the change goes without saying in many ways. But I suppose contrasting that, there are just these golden threads going throughout, which there are facets which are just really similar, I think, um, whether we speak to the consistent influence of external powers, the change, the issues that the monarchies have had, balancing local sort of um, natural unsustainabilities, as Mary Lomi might put it, um, the desire that, to, to steal another phrase from the literature, uh, Natalie Cost got this wonderful phrase about the desire for these techno-fetishistic solutions to wicked problems. Um, another friend of ours, Professor Dave DeRoche, talks about the polio shot. Our friends in the Gulf monarchies want a solution to a problem. And you see that going back to the 1940s all the way through to today. Mm -hmm. And just so, yeah, I just like to contrast this wicked change, massive change, at the same time as, you know, aside from those slightly flippant issues, the ruling families, you know, the, the, the big elements of change underpinning it all. That's, that's the point, I guess. 
So when you approach this, and I think one of the really distinctive things about the book is that when you're talking about security, as you said, you're talking about it in this very multidimensional way. And this is kind of a theoretical choice to uh, move beyond guns and bombs and to think about this across society, economy, uh, so many other dimensions. Walk us through this a little bit, like the genesis of this theoretical approach and why you think this is the right way to understand the challenges facing the Gulf. Sure. So this is exactly it. We all need a, a theoretical approach or a framing device of some variety for our endeavors. And so I was looking at the loose concept of security, but exactly as you say, not since the Cold War were we thinking of nuclear bombs and tanks and guns and stuff like that. So security did used to be this narrowly focused subject, broadly speaking. Post-Cold War and the subject widens, as the phrase has it in the literature. And environmental, societal, personal uh, aspects of security emerge and people begin chatting about these things. And they're all legitimate, as it were. But at some stage, you know, as David Baldwin sort of says, you just need to make a choice what you're kind of going to focus on. And there's no there's no ipso facto correct choice of what security is. I think it's quite relational. And so trying to not be too narrow, not be too broad. But to my mind, the Goldilocks approach comes from our friends in what's loosely sort of termed the Copenhagen School, where, you know, they want to that happy medium ground. Mm -hmm. And so they end up referring to political security, economic, societal, military and environmental sectors of security, as it were. And so that's the framing device for the book. And it frames it quite nicely, I think. And so, you know, if you're interested in the IPE, the economics of the region, well, there's a chapter specifically for you. You know what I mean? It just breaks it down nicely. And I still think it's got coherence. So usually when people think about security, as you said, you know, it's the, the military dimension of this. And obviously this hasn't gone away. And uh, between the Iranian nuclear challenge and uh, the, the spillover of the war in Yemen, uh, clearly military security is still something that matters. And we're seeing a lot of changes there as well, um, just in terms of the global environment and the regional environment. So talk us through this a little bit and how you think the military uh, dimension of security of the Gulf has changed and what stays the same. Yeah, indeed. So none of these categories are isolated from each other. So when we speak about the military component, we will bleed into chatting about politics into mm -hmm. your politics. But um, there's been a consistently pivotal continuity of the role of external actors in the security uh, military sort of sphere in, in the Gulf monarchies. We've seen that for a very long time. But one element of change that we've kind of seen a bit more contemporarily, as it were, is the war in Yemen, as we know, it's comparatively unusual uh, that the Gulf monarchies would launch such a kinetic hot war on their own border using their own troops. We've seen some unusual activity there for our Emirati friends in operations in Aden and the likes. Um, and so there's just a lot changing there. And so aside from the use of the military instrument mm -hmm. in a really pointed way, which is a, a key change, um, another element I would point to i always point to is you know the abcake attack in 2019 which uh, i always say i think will come to be seen as this uh, inflection point um in in kind of gulf security because this is where uncle sam the, the emperor loses his uh his clothes or whatever the phrase may be revealed mm -hmm. not to be wearing clothes as, as far as i see it because abcake being of course the world's most important oil refining facility you know, what is the point from the Saudi perspective of having decades upon decades of very expensive relations with the U.S.? A lot of U.S. military equipment has been bought hundreds of billions of dollars worth. I mean, the point of that is to protect your critical national infrastructure and maybe Abkhik above all others. And yet there were Iranian proxies or drones and cruise missiles. Moran and his proxy just whistled unopposed through these expensively assembled defenses. And so I think you had this crystallized moment where the Gulf monarchies just absolutely sort of shifted. There was this paradigm shift where they realized, actually, we are we were luxuriating in a slight misunderstanding about how secure we were. Mm -hmm. And I think Abkhik revealed what Abkhik and Khores, two attacks on the same day, they just revealed the, the fragility that they were in. And I think that precipitated this sort of new era where immediately after that, we saw our Emirati friends reach out to Iran to kind of calm down tensions a little bit. And 
few years later, we we are where we are. And so, yeah, uh, change and continuity, it, it, it's always there, the engagement of external actors, but how they are seen, I think, is changing. And the broader picture is as well, linking into a political point, is of the rise of the Gulf as in these independent actors. But it's interesting to track, for example, um, arms sales um, as as one of the indicators here. And you mentioned these expensive weapon systems, but you know that hasn't really stopped. No, it certainly hasn't. And this is an interesting point. So one of the things I'm sort of thinking about now a bit more is, is the depth is, you know, the, Foucault's got this phrase of this dispositif. It's like the, the under, under the table norms, expectations, uh, languages, cultures. So you buy the F-16 or whatever it is. But in addition, you've got a whole tale of logistics. You've got tools, you've got logisticians, you've got training. You know, it's not just the big ticket item. And so as much as our friends in the Gulf, I think, are increasingly looking to engage in a very different way with external alliances, and we can speak about China and the likes, you know, there is this there is this tale, this dispositive, this under the table stuff, which is really difficult to sort of chop and change. And so while we are seeing real problems in the US engagement in Saudi Arabia, for example, and you know, much, much more recently we've had China with its uh, mediation with Iran and Saudi Arabia, which is pretty significant. But you know, we are measuring the downswing of American influence in decades, not years, I think is my point still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, let's broaden it out beyond the uh, beyond the military, because I think in many ways that, you know, I mean, the book does talk about the military side. But as I said, I think the real contribution is to go deeper in, into these different sectoral approaches. So you lead the book with uh, what you call political security. And what do you mean by that? And, you know, why, why do you start there? just a choice that you need to make. There's nothing correct about the interpretation of what political security means. I just take it in terms of the concept of broad political stability mm-hmm. under the auspices that we are in at the moment. So it's this the broad concept of political security or stability of the elites and the governments where we are at the moment. So that's the sort of perspective. And then what do we have to say about this? I mean, again, some of the genesis for the book, you know, starting writing this a number of years ago, you know, an awful lot of ink was spilled about things like generational shifts in leadership in the Gulf. People were extremely concerned that this might have some kind of very sizable impact on political stability, if I want to have a better description. So generational change. We've had generational changes before, and this is what I... Another sort of thing about the the book, I should say, you know, it kind of goes back to the the beginnings of contemporary history of the Gulf monarchies 100 years ago and situates these generational changes in light of generational changes in the 60s or whenever it is. When we had young and thrusting leaders have come up before changing the status quo left, right and centre, and we still have the same kind of Gulf monarchies. And so today's generational shifts under without going back a decade or two under Hamad bin Khalifa in, in Doha, Mohammed bin Zayed in UAE a little bit more recently, Mohammed bin Salman now, of course. You know, they are new up to a point, but they are revolutionary in a fairly similar right. way to some of their forefathers in many ways. And so I just wanted to sort of contextualize historically these kinds of changes um, and just examine where we are at the moment. And let's talk about some of those. Like, for example, the UAE, is this really the same monarchy as it begins, you know, as you talk about, it's becoming more centralized, more personalized. Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, this is a really fundamental societal transformation from the top down. Um, you know, how far, uh, how many changes can there be where you still see continuity? <laughs> so I think the world's oldest building, um, wooden building, is in Nara in Japan. So I don't know, thousands of years old. And of course, every plank of the building has been changed over the years. So it's this esoteric question about whether it's the same building or not. Um, and it's a fairly similar kind of an idea. But definitely when it comes to the kingdom, we have seen really significant changes in our understanding of Saudi Arabia, really. You know, a decade ago, Everyone was in my lectures on the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Everyone's lectures would have said, well, you know, 
to understand Saudi Arabia, you need to understand the political half of the bargain, the religious half of the bargain, the Al Sauds and Wahhabs and all this kind of stuff. And that was true up to a point, and it was true until it wasn't true, if you see what I mean. There were these other understandings about the nature of rule about, well, there are different factions in the Al Saud and they sort of balance each other. Um, and that was true until it wasn't true. And, and so the, to be honest, I mean, there's a really interesting question here about epistemology in Gulf studies about honestly, how do we know what we know? On what are we basing our conclusions? Um, or are we just chatting in the in similar circles and concluding the same things? It's, it's a slightly unanswerable question, but it's very interesting. But nevertheless, yes, the kingdom does or has seen an, an awful lot of change, um, especially in sort of the leadership circles and what constitutes the, the leadership, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it's it's up for grabs and it needs to be sort of pinned down a bit. I guess this is my point that my point is not that I'm coming with answers to all of this, but at least I can trying to point out the, the contours of the problem at the very beginning of it. And it bleeds over into uh, the second chapter on societal security as these top-down changes are having you know these really clear and profound impacts across a lot of different sectors of society, whether it's gender, whether it's youth, whether it's you know any group within society. Absolutely right. And so you know, I think someone like Kristen Dewan Smith has written very nicely on nationalism in Saudi Arabia and and Kuwait as well about the real rise of this new form of very pointed nationalism, linking back to the military element in the UAE. We've seen a quite militarized version of nationalism in many ways, you know, murals on primary school walls, that kind of a thing, mm-hmm. Martyrs Day, commemorating the, the deaths in Yemen and stuff like this. And so this is quite a significant change that we've seen there. And again, linking into the, the, the political sector and thinking of Saudi Arabia, you know, the role and the place of Islam within the kingdom, we can only describe it as being reduced really quite significantly. It, mm-hmm. You know, there's a wonderful quote in the book from someone from the uh, religious police and the quotes to the effect of, well, I can't, you know, ban all the stuff I used to do. So why am I going to be in the police anymore, if you know what I mean? And it's just a little pithy phrase to just you know, speaking to the seismic shift of role, place of Islam within Saudi Arabia that, you know, isn't really there anymore um, in it as in your face away at least. And, you know, it's, it's sort of similar. I, I wrote for, for foreign affairs many moons ago, it was titled something at like the UE secular foreign policy. And I'm not sure that was my title, but this is what I was trying to get to about how one of the real issues I, I think at least, and I wrote extensively, is between Qatar and the UAE, is that they both think they have the secret source for governance in the Arab world. And the Qataris think it's all about having Islamists in the house and giving them a certain amount of room so they don't feel the need to become more and more extreme. And our Emirati friends, on the other hand, think the secret source is about having religion very Jeffersonian and absolutely nowhere near the levers of power. They want religion to be important. Look at this, the Sheikh Zayed Mosque, I think. Um, but they want the, the levers of power to be firmly away from anyone of an Islamist bent. And so you have within the Gulf these fundamentally mutually incompatible and clashing ideas in the societal and political sphere. And in, a, in, a, in a, an elevator pitch, that's what I think the Gulf blockade was about, uh, to be honest. And these days, well... Things have calmed down a little. We've passed that moment of peak and, you know, mm-hmm. neither side has capitulated and said, oh, actually, what do you know? You were right. But we are nevertheless just cooling down and learning to live with our differences a little bit more, I guess. This question of epistemology is really interesting because, you know, as you know, the, as the gulf has been changing so rapidly at the same time, you know, it's become quite difficult to do research in many of these countries for security reasons or repression and the like. And so it does create kind of an interesting knowledge gap across the field of of gulf studies. You're right. I was speaking to a government audience last year where I was talking about this epistemology thing and they thought I was mad because governments don't want to hear about epistemology. But my point was, (laughs) no, 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 this is 
genuinely relevant for you? Because this speaks to where, what is our knowledge and where do we get our knowledge from? And so I got no magical answers to it. Um, but I suppose my point is we need to be a little careful in what we assume to be right, that we don't reify, we don't make assumptions correct because I speak to you, you speak to mm -hmm. someone else, that third person speaks to me. It's like, oh, well, I, I'm correct about this assumption, about whatever it may be. Um, and so I think we just need to be a little humble. We can, we, we can only do what we can do. We can conduct the interviews that we can do. We can leverage our, our contacts. We can use the data that we've got. There are some lovely data shops still in the Gulf, as we know. Um, and so it's the art of the possible, but with without being overly grandiose and staying a bit humble, like I say. Right. So I want to I want to jump over uh, the chapter on the economy for a moment, because I'm really curious about uh, your comments on uh, the environment as a as a kind of independent and critical sector for security. This has obviously been an increasingly you know, a theme that's been getting a lot of attention because of the various COP workshops and the uh, you know, climate change reports and the like. So talk us through this a little bit and in terms of how you see the environmental issues fitting in to this multidimensional notion of security. Indeed. So, you know, just stepping back, if I had a, a one line about the book, about what is the central argument of the book, I would say that oil is more important than we think. Hmm. You know, an oil transition, it's not just or we need an economic transition. We need to more reflect and understand that the very nature of the oil economy has created everything in the Gulf monarchies, the state society relations, industry, uh, foreign relations, you know, it's shaped in an by oil. And so any economics, a very long sentence, a very elevator pitch, but any change will fundamentally have to change kind of everything. So coming on to sort of the environmental elements herein, suppose the point is that the Gulf monarchy, again, Mary Lomi talks about this natural unsustainability that we saw 100 plus years ago with pearling that, you know, you had, interestingly, you, you, the analogies are interesting. You had this natural, non-renewable, uh, locally occurring kind of resource that completely contorted the economic and societal realities, driving migration, uh, very sort of internationalized and regional. And that in, in you know some of the coastal element uh, parts of the monarchies at least you know that was like 80 90 100 of the economies um then pearling kind of disappeared and right it, it was completely disastrous but um the the point about pearling is that you know it gave a certain amount of fiscal input to the state to overcome these natural unsustainabilities you know the qatar airways in-flight magazine used to boast that the Qatari Peninsula is the only 100% desertified peninsula in the world, which is a weird boast. But, you know, <laughs> if you have the money, you can overcome any and all of these issues. And this, going back to sort of Natalie Koch and some other authors there, they talk about this illusion of infinite water. You know, the monarchies are surprisingly lush. You know, beside the roads, you see an awful lot of verdant green grass. Um, a couple of years ago, um, the Saudi, one of the, immensely grandiose projects that was announced in the kingdom was the plan to plant maybe a billion trees or something like this in the desert, which sounds, you know, environmental, but where's the water coming from? You know, but it's, it's, it's this sort of oily mindset mm. of there's a problem and we can overcome it by sheer force of loose, sheer force of money. Um, and I'm not sure that, Oh, I'm, I'm quite sure that ultimately it's it's not a sustainable issue. Um, but when, as and when the money is still flowing, that yes, the broad environmental picture from the monarchies is really grim. Of course it is. We know this. Um, but the, the externalities and the issues can be overcome. Um, food can be imported. It's going to get hotter. Air conditioning can be uh, turned up. Um, increasing solar power plants and the likes, but the desalination kind of cycle is, 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 is a tricky one, the salination of the Gulf and so on and so on. There are lots of vicious circles within this. But yeah, this links to the economic paradigm. Yes, while the money's there, you know, not such a big problem, but you know, until it's a, until it's not there, then it's a real issue. Someday, someday the oil economy will end and it'll still be 140 degrees. This is this is the pickle. This is without a doubt the problem. Yeah, and so hence the, 
you know, I suppose this is in many ways a, yeah, the, the central line about the book is to do with the nature of the, the economy because that funds and fuels everything. And, you know, the problems, whether they're environmental, whether they're about the youth, whether they're about social, <clears throat> these are generic uh, to the Middle East and to a lot of the global South. But as you said, you know, the, this constellation of oil and monarchy really does seem to be what makes the, the Gulf stand out as having, you know, something distinctive in terms of their response to these generic problems. And maybe it's just the money, but it seems like it's more than that. I agree. I mean, you know, there's lots of interesting stuff on monarchical exceptionalism, obviously enough. It's a good essay question uh, for, <laughs> for these students. Um and Venezuela, Iraq, and Iran should be the richest countries on earth, given their their hydrocarbon wealth. And <laughs> they're very much not. And so there is something about the Gulf monarchies and leadership. Uh, they have had surprisingly effective leadership, uh, in essence, um, technocratic over the years, increasingly technocratic. And so, in that sort of a sense, you have had that's been a a key factor for them. Equally, you know, the fact that they have been on the side of Western states has been incredibly helpful. Of course, Venezuela, Iraq and Iran very much have not been on the side of Western states. So there's that international dimension. But very much, it's absolutely not just money. Uh, that's no panacea to anything. Um, but it, it certainly helps. So when you look at this then in like this bigger picture and you're looking at the sustainability of the ruling bargains and the political economies and the security arrangements that uh, the Gulf monarchies have kind of constructed around them, you know, what should we be looking at? What are the big things which your book tells us um, are like the big takeaways for how we should be thinking about what's happening in this uh, subregion at the moment? I guess the key point, um, sort of slightly repeating myself, but mm -hmm. hopefully in a, in a different way, is again that we mustn't think of the economic transition that needs to transpire away from an oil and gas-based economy. We mustn't think of that in terms of just dollars and cents. Uh, it is, needs to be far wider reaching than that into the societal and kind of political spheres. Um, and we are sort of seeing that. I mean, so going back to this sort of epistemology sort of an issue. I mean, in the back in the, the day when I lived in the Gulf, maybe 10 years ago, I would say that in, I was in Qatar at the time, they need a Ferrari tax. They need a 15% tax on Ferraris. And I was, wasn't particularly being flippant. I was like, on like obscene luxury goods, start a tax. Like who is going to argue about a tax on a Ferrari? And the pushback was just absolutely unanimous about how, oh no, this couldn't possibly be conceived of in our sort of ruling bargain of mm -hmm. that wasn't the language that my friends at Qatar used, but we, we couldn't possibly have that. And yet, and yet we are seeing certainly indirect taxes rise across the Gulf. We are seeing expectations about um, how Saudis would understand the nation, the notion of their ruling bargain, what jobs Saudi would Saudis would take. We are seeing firm expectations, reified beliefs of 10 years ago, really quite upended, to be honest. It's the proverbial or literal Saudi serving you at the petrol station as you go into the hotel and in the shop. These sorts of, quote unquote, slightly more menial jobs, where, which had long been assumed would just not work for Saudis or vice versa. Um, we've been sort of incorrect about that. And so, again, to, to, to this point about how we know what we know, we need to be a little humble about what it is and just work on, do what we can to... Keep an open mind, I guess. So I think maybe one way to, to wrap this up would be to say that there's been kind of a perennial discourse around uh, kind of instability in the Gulf and the notion that these are fragile states that, uh, mm. you know, that Saudi Arabia could face, you know, profound instability, that Bahrain or uh, well, probably not UAE and Qatar, but uh, you know what I mean? Like that, mm. that, that these are that these are fundamentally countries that are on the brink of instability and your book kind of pushes against that sees them i as in my reading at least as much more resilient and adaptable um kind of governing enterprises you know where where do you come down on this question of the stability and adaptability of these uh of these systems i suppose the point is that they are adaptable within their train tracks within their hydrocarbon based train tracks I and between the fiscal strength and good leadership, or whatever we want to think about it, they have been able to adapt accordingly. 
Um, and again, the impossible, imponderable is what happens subsequently, is in the nature of the transition. And we're seeing some good signs on that, as I say. Um, you know, the ruling bargain, as sacrosanct as it was, is definitely being reinterpreted. Um, and some of our old understandings about the rigidity of that are proving not quite as as uh, resilient as we as we might have assumed. Um, and so, yeah, it's th th there's there's movement there, and whether I suppose the point is the the shifting nationalisms at the moment, um, trying to move away from, you know, sort of whether that's purely economically focused or focusing on the, the Saudi elites, for example, or whomever it is, to uh, this ginning up of this bottom-up uh, Saudi nation, Emirati nation nationalism, whether that is a handmaiden to the difficult decisions, economic decisions that will need to be made to facilitate the transition onwards. I guess that's the key point. Well, it's interesting, and it's uh, this really is one of the uh, very few books we've got now that looks at this broad spectrum of uh, of security in the Gulf, not just security, but as you say, security politics in the Gulf. Um, and uh, so uh, we've been talking to David Roberts about his book, Security Politics in the Gulf Monarchies. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined by Jerome Gunning of King's College London, who, along with his co-author, Dima Smira of the American University of Beirut, has recently published two articles on uh, the on practices of everyday peace and security in uh, in Bahia, in uh, in Lebanon. Um, Jerome, uh, welcome to the pro to the show. Thank you, Mark. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, these two articles and the, the and the broader project uh, from which uh, the research is drawn? Yeah, um, but before I start, just want to say that uh, Dima is is uh, very sad that she can't be here today, but uh, she she's uh, she could give me authorization to speak on, on behalf of both of us. Um, Great, uh, but yeah, so so the the research has been published in, in or one has been published in in political geography, um, and this was part of a special issue. Um, on um, what the edits called urban badlands and sort of thinking through areas that were often um, considered violent or uh, notorious for sort of gang warfare and stuff, uh, but then critiquing that, that that whole concept and, and thinking how order is actually um, achieved in, in, in those kind of contexts. And then the second article is forthcoming in, in the journal um, uh, Peace Building, and this is part of a special issue on uh, everyday peace um, in, in violently contested cities. So the, the, the research question that we kind of looked at in, in both of these question, um, um, articles was how, um, how do ordinary people um, navigate sort of everyday insecurity, everyday security? How, how do they sort of achieve everyday security? Um, and so, so this was not about military security or national security. It's not about party politics, um, although, of course, parties come into it, um, uh, but it's about sort of everyday security. And in this, um, we kind of moved away from... from from two perspectives. One, particularly for me, uh, I, I was sort of very much embedded in the social movement literature, looking at political parties and armed organizations, etc. And here, the, the shift goes to urban uh, urban context, ur urban um, 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 practices of the everyday. Um, and Dima had already started this with her work uh, with, with Durham University, but in Lebanon on youth um, and and how they kind of uh, how they identified with with citizenship. And so she had already experimented with sort of with uh, um, talking with with ordinary people and and seeing how this would sort of change the perspective. And I think that that, that second bit uh, where we move from sort of elite perspectives. Uh, which even in critical security studies or in the everyday uh, um, everyday practice literature is still often the focus is on elite elite actors and we wanted to come to look more at uh, what's often called vernacular everyday security so what is it like for ordinary people mm -hmm. um, and that's um so that's a fundamental shift in in concepts also in the kind of literatures that you engage and in the methodology as to how, how you go about it um so that was kind of the background and so um on the one hand, we found as we were looking at this, this everyday um, insecurity and security practices that, um, as expected, um, in, in, in Dahia, which are the, the southern suburbs of Beirut, um, Hezbollah uh, was the, the dominant actor. So most people said, um, that, uh, most people we talked to said that they went to Hezbollah if their bike was stolen or if they had a, a family dispute or you know something to do with the everyday. Um, and also state actors, state security actors needed Hezbollah's permission to, to enter Dahia or to operate in, in Dahia. That was very clear so that Hezbollah was dominant. 
But then this is not the whole story. Right. Um, and we found that there are multiple actors uh, um, at play here. Um, they're often um, they're sort of hybrids in terms of whether they're state or not state. Uh, they're place-based and very kind of, they vary um, across space and across type of incident. So for example, in Bir Hassan, um, uh, the, the, the political Shia party Amal uh, is, is, is more dominant. So people would more likely go to them. In Leilaki, in the southern part of Dahia, which is an informal area, quite poor, um, um, some of the clans are, are dominant. Um, when it comes to low-level crime, you've got the internal uh, security forces, which is the police. Um, when it's sort of large um, clan fights, it's, it's the army that steps in. So there's a whole array of, of actors uh, stepping in. And what's also interesting, we found is that you know, often people say Hezbollah has created a state within the state. Um, and it was very clear that it was not the case because Hezbollah did not have a, a monopoly on the, uh, on the legitimate use of arms. It needed to kind of negotiate this. Um, it was not operating sort of in key state fields like like the the, the, um, the, the judiciary or or the, or the prison system, the, the penitentiary system. So they didn't have those aspects of, of state, and it was very much kind of a, um, a complementarity and a sort of informal formal sort of uh, um, uh, type of practices going on. So you, so that is the kind of thing we want to do. No, so I was just going to ask you if you could say a little bit more about why the urban context is so important. Why is this um, the key place to look for these kinds of security practices? I think one is, is that that more and more people um, are living in, in urban urban contexts, um, mm -hmm. and, and so I think this, in, in, in some ways, is very representative of of the, of the kind of um, uh, the informality, uh, the, the, the precarity, etc., that, that a lot of people share. Um, but it's also particularly interesting when, when you think about sort of the, what is the urban doing in, in this, um, in the urban cities, sort of in the city's literature, um, uh, three aspects of, of the urban often um, um, highlighted as, as it's dense, mm -hmm. um, they're heterogeneous, there's lots of people thrown together from different backgrounds, and they are they're permeable, the, the kind of boundaries are, are very permeable with the outside. And what's very interesting, um, and I'll say a bit more about this later, but for example, the way uh, dynamics that were happening in the in the eastern part of, of Lebanon on, on the Syrian border in, in the in the Bekaa Valley or in, in the southern part of, of Lebanon, they played a role in Dahia, even though they're not there, they're kind of translocal effects, but but they kind of they permeated what was happening in terms of who people would turn to, um, whether they had access to, to arms or not, etc. Um, and also what's interesting is that the, the, the heterogeneity uh, on the one hand creates more insecurity because you know there's, there's more strangers, there's more people from from different backgrounds. Um, and so, for example, there was one, one case where uh, somebody's motorbike was was stolen by uh, by a, a clan originally from the Beka, uh, and this person himself was from the south. But that wouldn't have happened if he had lived in the south, right? That, that was only possible in in Dahia. But then. Through connections in this dense uh, urban neighborhood, he had uh, um, sort of an association or a, a link with somebody from the clan who had st stolen his, his, his bike, who was high up in military intelligence, so part of the state apparatus, but also high up in the clan. So he called him, and then this guy called the the, the, the father of the, of the of the guy who'd actually stolen the bike and said, "Look, you know, I'm here. I want this bike at my office in half an hour, and the bike was returned." <laughs> and so that opportunity wouldn't be there in the south either because you know this this guy would have come originally from the Vikami, the, the military and intelligence and so the density also creates opportunities that that wouldn't be there otherwise yeah that's really interesting so before we get into the the specific detailed findings tell us a little bit about the field work that uh, the two of you did because uh, as you mentioned in the articles it's not so easy to get access to the kind of the intimate life of an area like Dahia. Yeah, um, and this is in some ways was also kind of um, a development of, of our research project because we were first focusing more on, on Hezbollah and, and, and trying to kind of secure interviews with Hezbollah leaders and, and members. Um, and particularly since sort of the early 2010s, Hezbollah has, has, has been very uh, difficult on, on researchers. I mean, they just haven't granted um, uh, many interviews. So that, that was sort of a blank wall. But then um, during the 2016 elections, when we started to think about everyday security in, in a more kind of concentrated way, um, we were given permission by Hezbollah and, and by, the, uh, by the Ministry of, 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 of uh, Internal State um, to, uh, to have um, uh, um, street chats with people um, about the elections. Um, and because we were talking about the people anyway, we then also could talk about everyday security, etc. Um, and that's kind of opened up a whole new avenue of, of, of doing research, because rather than sort of trying to secure um, elite interviews, you, you, you walk around on the street, you talk to shopkeepers. Um, during elections, 
of course it's it's easy because people are milling about and and you, you can just approach people um and i think because not many researchers um uh, do this kind of thing with ordinary people in in dahia a lot of people were actually quite keen to tell their story it was the sense that ah there's people from the outside who want to hear what it's really like and they don't want to just kind of have the stereotypical idea of of, of dahia as as dangerous and and, and etc and they, so they wanted to, there was an element they wanted to kind of show how Actually, it was um, an area of order and of, of, of uh, people who felt at home there. Um, so you had to kind of also take some of the things with, with a grain of salt because they were kind of they were trying to un undermine the, 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 the stereotype, which is also completely understandable. Um, and then from from geography, Diem had been working with with other um, um, critical geographers from Durham before, um, and they had the idea of, of a walking interview or a, a, a driving interview. So you go through a city. With people from the city, or you walk through, or you drive through, mm -hmm. and then you talk about areas. And it's very interesting when when you are interested in in space and place and and how things vary across space. When you are um, actually walking through an urban area, and then you have this this building right in front of you, or this particular crossing, uh, people are much more uh, sort of specific and detailed about the kind of of, of experience they, they they tell. So it's not sort of a a, a, a general. Oh, we right. have security. Uh, it is you know, here. This is what happened, and and this actor can be here, and that actor can be there, um, and so that again was a shift. At least for for me, for Dima, had already um, uh, experienced it, but this is kind of um, making space in some ways part of the methodology. Now, a lot of the, at least in one of the articles, um, you read this through the theoretical lens of Pierre Bourdieu, which is uh, increasingly popular in uh, in kind of certain sectors of Middle East political science. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the core theoretical ideas that you're bringing to bear and why you think they're helpful for understanding what you're trying to study? So Bourdieu is, is interesting in the way he, he came to, to this, this project. I mean, I had already... Uh, been reading up on Bourdieu in, in a different context. I was as well sort of, uh, familiar with this, this concept. But what struck us, I mean, we started quite self-consciously, and this was kind of encouraged by the, uh, by the, 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 the um, um, Beirut School of, of Critical Security Studies, and you know, Walid Hasboun, his article about the view from, from Beirut, and this, this whole kind of move towards thinking and theorizing from the, from the global south and, and from areas like, like Dahia, rather than from Washington or from London, as a lot of the international relations and security studies literature still, still do. So we, we very self-consciously started with the sort of the narrated experiences of people that we were talking to. And as we were listening to them, um, there were a lot of echoes with, with Bourdieu. So for example, um, one person was exp explaining to, to Dima how her, her father, who was the head of the family, uh, was the, the go-to mediator um, uh, for, for them. And then they, they had all these, these qualities, like they were the head of the family, they had a reputation for honesty. They were trusted by many people. They had um, um, connections with parties and with the state. And so you could see um, um, the, uh, Bourdieu's idea of, of, of capital. Uh, for example, symbolic capital is, is, is trust and social capital is, is how kind of socially networked and embedded you are, or also what, what kind of um, 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 bureaucratic organization you can bring to bear in terms of making uh, these, these social networks effective, right? And this is where Hezbollah has an edge because it, it's, it's very effective in terms of its, its internal organization. But also um, um, cultural capital in terms of the standing of people, whether they were the head of a family or, or whether they were so highly regarded because of um, that they had, you know, um, 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 religious uh, sort of training, or there were all kind of things that that, that echoed um, Bourdieu's idea of capital. And then people were also talking about how um, they were both sort of constrained and enabled by, by the, the, the social structures they were they were part of and the, the position that they, they took in that. Um, so some people who were sort of higher up had, had more options and some people who were lower down had less options. And that felt very much like, like Bourdieu's concept of a field. That, uh, Bourdieu talks about sort of social fields and it can be the political field or the security mm -hmm. fields. And uh, it, people have positions in those fields according to the amount of capital they have. And then also what kind of the rules the field are and, and, and how that field values certain types of capital more than others. And then the third element, uh, which, which kind of jumped out, was people were talking about how um, those who originally came from, from the Bekaa Valley, uh, and, and Dahia is, is, is a very kind of recent um, sort of um, 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 creation as, as an urban environment uh, from sort of 1960s onwards, you had uh, predominantly Shia that kind of that, that moved from the south and from the Bekaa, where uh, um, uh, through industrialization of, of, of farming, um, they, they had a very sort of uh, difficult livelihood. So they, they were sort of 
particularly the men would, would, would go to, 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 to what became Dahia. And so it was first known as this misery belt. And then later on, it, 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 uh, it developed also more, more prosperous areas. But what we found is people were talking um, about people who originally were from the Beka Valley in a very different way to those who were from the south in terms of who the security actors were that they were, uh, were approaching, what the kind of rules were. And so that, that kind of echoed mm -hmm. Woody's idea of a habitus, that, this, that people are socialized um, in, in certain ways that are very much dependent on, on, on local social structures. So that's um, when we kind of saw the, those echoes um, between what people were saying and what what Bourdieu had been writing. We thought this was a very interesting sort of dialogue to to to, uh, to explore further. And then the, the second thing, of course, um, and this is where you have to be very careful when you use someone like like Bourdieu. I mean, Bourdieu developed his thinking in the context mostly of of the sort of the late twentieth century French state, um, and he also looked at other European states, but very Eurocentric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in his uh, thinking, when he talks about fields, for example. He assumes that there is a, a, a barbarian state which has the monopoly on the, on the le legitimate um, sort of use of arms within that state. Um, that the, the state is, is the most powerful field. That it it, uh, it 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 controls education and all these other kind of things. So all kind of capitals like like the cultural capital from education is kind of uh, determined by the state. Now part of that you can see also in Lebanon, but Lebanon is is also. A very different uh, kind of uh, context. It, it's a post-colonial context. Uh, the, the state does not have a monopoly. Uh, there are sort of other internal armed actors. There are external state actors that, that interfere within the sort of Le Lebanese space. Um, so you need to sort of decouple uh, the, the, the ideas of, of Bourdieu from this, this kind of this European context. And mm -hmm. unlike terms like sovereignty or state, which are still very much kind of embedded in, in this barbarian sort of European um, context, uh, um, Bourdieu, because his concepts are, can be treated as mid-range concepts, not as grand theory, but as sort of thinking tools, mm -hmm. you can sort of decouple it and say, well, you can have fields in a context where the state is only one um, field among other fields. It's not always the most powerful everywhere. Um, you can have non-state actors who have accumulated enough capital to constitute what, what Bourdieu calls meta-capital. And that means that they, they can control and sort of dominate a particular kind of field in a particular place. You have also state actors that that um, draw power from non-state positions. So for example, somebody who is the head of a family, that's not a state position, but, but that, that strengthens their position in the state apparatus. And so for example, one of the reasons that, that Lebanon has been enduring as a state is that the elite, um, so the social relations around the elite are, are very enduring. And it's in some ways those non-state things that, that, that support almost the, the state. So in that sense, Bourdieu is, is a really kind of helpful interlocutor to, to to think differently about security in a in a sort of non-Ribarian context, but also without all these kind of assumptions of sovereignty. So for example, when people talk about um, sovereignty in the case of Lebanon, they often talk about hybrid sovereignty or partial or informal sovereignty. But all these these added adjectives, they again invoke this, this supposed Ribarian norm, that, that Lebanon is somehow deficient from that norm. Whereas if you look at it from this, from this Bourdieu sort of uh, perspective, at least the way we developed it, there is not a norm that you have to sort of compare as, as, um, Lebanon to. It's just you're trying to observe who is acting where and, and how does this kind of um, uh, how does this work in practice. It's fascinating that uh, Bourdieu has become the most influential with people studying Lebanon and Iraq, the two kind of least statist uh, of the um, of the cases, probably. Yeah, and, and I think it is because he's much more, more flexible. At least he himself maybe wasn't, uh, but, but the way you can use him uh, right, is right. much more flexible. I mean, it so would be fascinating had he been alive to see how he would sort of uh, uh, treat uh, Lebanon and, and Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. But let's talk a little bit about this this concept of everyday security then, which runs through the articles and which I think is the main kind of thing you're trying to explain is, is how ordinary people navigate the insecurity of daily life. So let's talk through this a little bit and tell us kind of what you found and what, what the key arguments um, of the project are. So what we found is, is that... Um, um, so, so, so first, and this is where, where Bourdieu also has to be slightly kind of amended. I mean, Bourdieu does account or, or, or give some space for agency, but he's a very kind of heavily a, a structuralist weighted sort of, um, mm -hmm. scholar. He, he looks more at sort of how, how do structures reproduce themselves. Um, and agency kind of sometimes drops by, by the way a bit. What we found um, is, is that when we talk to people, yes, they were, um, they were embedded in structures and those structures shaped their choices. 
but they were very agential. They, they were sort of uh, they would sort of scan this, what, what we call this sort of the horizon and sort of think, okay, who in this this situation? Say my motorbike is stolen. Say this this example, the motorbike by the by the sort of the the the, the, uh, the members of, of this clan that have stolen the motorbike. So this this guy then thinks, okay, how do you deal with that? Um, I'm not a clan member. I'm not not from the big car. I don't have a large family that I can use to kind of to put pressure on this other large family. Because the, the 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 south has, has got much more kind of fragmented families than than the, the large clans in, in the Bekaa. Mm-hmm. Um, so then he he scans around and thinks, okay, I know this guy in in the um, in military intelligence. He's a member of that clan. Um, maybe he's been providing him information. We, we don't know exactly what that relationship is, but but clearly um, there there was some leverage that, that he could um, sort of uh, um, uh, put on on this this military intelligence. Partly, of course. Probably the, the, the military intelligence guy didn't want his, his clan to be um, sort of portrayed in a bad light, so so he wanted this to be kind of resolved. Mm-hmm. But also, and but this is where where Boudier gets very interesting, and that we saw again and again um, that symbolic capital, this idea of, of trust uh, for Boudier is is about credit and about credence. So in other words, for you to have symbolic capital, I need to agree that I trust in you. And so that means that, that that I have some leverage over you. So even if I have no capital, I'm I'm very poor. Um, I I, I uh, you know I'm, I'm not so well connected, because uh, um, for example, as the, the head of the family or as somebody in, in in the military intelligence, you want to maintain that level of, of trust, that maintain that level of symbolic capital. You need to do something in 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 return of for for, for getting that 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 credence. And I think this is where we found that if you read Bourdieu through a sort of subaltern lens and sort of think about how do people without much power still get things done, um, and that is partly through, through this, this leverage of the of the, the, the credits that, that powerful actors need from from, from powerless actors in, in terms of maintaining that, that symbolic capital. So that, that was something that was really interesting. And we saw this also, for example, um, in, in the in the peace building article, we, we, we talk about a particular example of a Palestinian teenager uh, the Dachia has some of the Palestinian refugee camps uh, since since a long time, um, and this this teenager had been kept uh, had been kidnapped by one of the one of the big Bekaa clans, and so his friends were thinking, okay, how do we somehow um, create leverage? So they decided to then to to counter kidnap some of the of 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 the of the, 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 the kids from from the other uh, the other clan, and by that point, you know, the, some Palestinians in in kind of the, the confines of the refugee camp, which is a separate space to, to Dahia. I mean, the, the, the security right. actors have to kind of get clearance to go in there. They suddenly had leverage over the other clan, and for for other big powerful actors like uh, Hezbollah, uh, like the mayor and the Mukhtar, who's to come the the, the, the lowest levels of uh, locally elected uh, state representative who looks after sort of a small urban area, they didn't want this to escalate. So they suddenly had an incentive to to get all the sort of the, the, the heads of the families together. Uh, and then over coffee, over over three days, they sorted this out, and the the, the, the two so kidnapped parties were exchanged, and everything was fine again. So this, but a it, it shows the agency and so and the ingenuity um, of, for example, these Palestinian teenagers of of using the fact that they were in in a separate space that that had separate separate sort of um, um, set separate security rules than, than the rest of the Dahia. Um, so they suddenly could turn their their disadvantage into an advantage. So that that's kind of a, a clear agency work. But then also what we found interesting is that that so Dahia has, has got I mean it is it is very crowded it's got areas that are very poor um, it's got these links with kind of with with crime networks through the Bekaa Valley into Syria because of, of various family connections it's flooded with arms both from Lebanon's own sort of past but also from the Syrian war and and yet violence is actually quite contained um, and um, I mean mm. yes there, there are problems and you, I mean, you have, you have um, uh, fights between between clans or, or families that, that break out. And they need to be contained. So, but it's in some ways it's not uh, that exceptional if you compare to the rest of, of Lebanon or, or other places in, in the Middle East. And what's really interesting is the mechanisms that are in place to um, to um, reduce violence, to con- contain the violence. And so, particularly in the peace building article, we were we were looking at um, as part of the special issue, uh, which was looking at the, co- the constructive potential of of the, uh, of contested cities. Um, and on the one hand, yet is this destructive potential of all the, all the weapons and, and the heterogeneity and all these different groups milling together in a very uh, dense environment. But then you had these mechanisms for de-escalating things. And so for, so we were kind of arguing that although this was not transformative of power relations, I mean, you still had the same power actors in control at the end, 
it was uh, generative of what, what we call agonistic spaces. So spaces where rather than antagonism, where you have arms and sort of uh, resorting to violence, you have agonism, which is you 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 um, through through discourse and and uh, and sort of agreement over cups of coffee, you you sort things out. Um, and that that I think was a really interesting sort of finding also. And one of the things which which really comes through is kind of one of the big takeaways for me is the extent to which you don't want to be looking at the formal structures. It's not necessarily, you know, kind of the, the, the it's not the police, it's not even necessarily Hezbollah, but it's highly localized. And you use the, the concepts of Habitus and Daxa quite interesting ways here in terms of how these people simply know how to navigate all of these different possibilities because of, you know, where, how they've embodied particular, um, you know, positions within, within this space. Yeah. And I think this is really interesting because uh, I mean one of the things that, that you know, of course, very early on is that most state security actors are not based in Dachia; they're outside Dachia, so they they have to come in for particular operations. And then you have some police stations that are kind of mostly on, on the on the rim of of, of Dachia, so they're quite distant from people in terms of their, you know, their their mental space, if you like. Um, so, so that's one thing. So, so the state is not not very visible, whereas actors like like Hezbollah and, and to lesser extent um, Amal and 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 the clans in areas where Amal and the clans are, are more kind of concentrated, they are much more present. And this is also where this what we call a translocal habitus comes in. So mm -hmm. both people who come from the south and people who come from the Bekaa originally um, have um, their families, are, and, and often they, they themselves have have uh, have grown up in areas where the state has not been very visible. Um, uh, and so, when you come to to, to Dahia, um, and again, the, the state isn't very visible. Your your kind of your translocal habitus has already kind of preconditioned you to think, well, we need to go to the parties, or we need to go to to the clans. And this is again where these kind of um, these translocal dynamics are different. So, because in the south, uh, the family structure. Had, had sort of been broken down by a couple of, of powerful feudal families. So there the, the used to be clans and that, that, that structure was kind of weakened. Um, and so first, the, the, the feudal families were to go to uh, providers of, of security, but often mostly insecurity. And then when, when they kind of were, were um, uh, weakened by, um, by the, the war that happened and the, and the rise of new actors, Amal and, and Hezbollah, so the, the two political parties, became the go-to actors. And so when you talk to people in, in Dachia, they said, but, you know, for the last 40 years, Amal and Hezbollah in the south have helped us and they've protected us against Israel. They've, uh, you know, uh, uh, helped with our everyday security issues. So, of course, here in Dachia, we go to Hezbollah or Amal. Um, whereas if people were from, from the Bekaa, then they more often would, would go to, to the clans because in the Bekaa, it's, it's the, the clans that, that, that tend to sort things out um, amongst themselves or between themselves. And Hezbollah... It comes in when there's, there's there's two big clans and and, and uh, they need some kind of like a mediating role, but then they always get the the, the, sort of the heads of the families involved, uh, right? So they're kind of they're much more in, in the background. They certainly don't go in so guns blazing. I mean that's something that a lot of people said. You know that's that's not the way Hezbollah operates because they they need to stay on on the good side of the clans. They need votes. They need um, good soldiers. You know they 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 need to kind of um, coordinate things with them. Um, and so, and this is to, to go back to your sort of the informal, uh, because state actors are are kind of much more distant; they're not really present there. What you then get is is um, informal relations, particularly family relations. So, so a, a lot of, of these things were were resolved through family relations, um, and that's of course it goes outside of the state. And then you have got these kind of uh, these party relations, which are in some ways formal because they're they're formal political parties, but often there's also because. The, the, the particular party member is a member of a big big clan or of another family. And so you would go to that particular member because they're also a member of your family. Um, and that, I think, that really pushes back against Bourdieu uh, because Bourdieu expects the state to be the, the dominant sort of actor in, in all these things. And of course here, it, it is not. I mean, it is there. I mean, for example, uh, as Bola, as um, when, it, when it comes to, to prisons, uh, um, uh, you know, people are, are handed over to state actors or Hezbollah, as people say, lifts the, the political cover from people so that the state can, can apprehend them. Um, the, 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 the whole uh, the, the judicial system is, is run by the state. So, so in that sense, the state is there. And, and um, particularly when it comes, for example, to, to big clan fights, Hezbollah doesn't get involved in terms of, of coercive means. It's the army that gets involved. Uh, because Hezbollah recognizes again that the army has got high symbolic capital, um, and and so people 
even if they don't like being rounded up by, by the army, um, that symbolic capital gets less dented than if Hezbollah goes and, and does it. Um, and so there's a recognition that, that the army has this, this symbolic capital, which partly comes from it being a state actor. Um, and the army is seen as the kind of the, the, the um, to use um, uh, Michelle Obeid's term, she used to, uh, talks about this, uh, the ideal phase of the state. And mm -hmm. uh, we felt that that when people talked about the army, they were saying, you know, this represents the um, the the the, the um, 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 protective state. This is the face of the protective state. When they're talking about the the ISF, the, the police, uh, they were saying this is this is the face of the of the negligent state. These people, you know, they they're not um, as effective, etc. So the state played a role, but it, it was much more in, in the background than you would expect, say, from from a, um, a classical Bourdieuian perspective. Well, it's really interesting. We've been speaking with uh, Jerome Gunning about uh, the work he's been doing with uh, Dimas Mera uh, on everyday security in Beirut. Mm -hmm.